Hello? Hey. You're listening to Ergo. You are indeed. I'm Kiss. I'm Dana. And uh, I don't know why I feel like I'm kind of whispering. It is the nice turtle. Oh, yeah. Not only is Kiss a, 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 a turtleneck aficionado, he stepped his game up. And this is this is pushing towards luxury. Turtleneck. You know, I really came up at the uh, at the Gap Outlet. Ah. Shout out to the Gap Outlet on Milwaukee and Diversity. Surplus goods. Always being exactly exactly what you need. <laughs> We uh, we got a great show for you. It's the third uh, episode of our podcast with Free Spirit Media called In the Loop at the Blue. Yep, yep. This one has some conversation focused on cannabis legalization, a whole bunch of other great stories that they've been working on. We take a deep dive in. But first, some community announcements. This Friday, uh, Black Birth Matters, my sister Christiana Ray Cologne is having a baby and... True to form, we are making an event out of it. <laughs> As if having a kid isn't enough of yep, an event. Yep. So it's part baby shower, part cultural political event, uh, honoring birthing and reproduction and sexual justice. 6 to 9 p.m. at the High Park Arts Center, Black Birth Matters, Christiana Ray Cologne, and a bunch of other very dope people. Quinn Riley's going to be there, Melissa Dupre. Uh, All those Ergo alums. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be it's gonna be a lot of squad and family happening there. So and if you can't week. make it and still want to be involved uh christiana has a baby registry posted and you can go ahead and just make a little purchase through that Mm -hmm. that's on the facebook page Mm -hmm. Um, also then saturday night is the next edition of the hood wazi this one's on indigenous food justice around thanksgiving and thanksgiving the breakdown guest is lani aloha lee who runs the aloha center chicago and then we're flying in brian yazzie who's a chef uh Mm -hmm. in the twin cities at a restaurant called the sioux chef Uh, and he'll be talking about his work, and Luna Day will be the musical guest. Ah, great. So that's at Read Red Library Saturday night. Phenomenal. And then on the 28th at Uncharted Books is the next edition of Hooligans Talking About Books, which is a conversation series around what people have been reading, hosted by Squad Rivka Yecker. That's a great show always. Make sure you check that out. And then on the 29th, my, my side podcast, <laughs> uh, Versus, is doing a live episode as part of the Chicago Podcast Festival at Hungry Brain you know, that show is hosted by Danette Smith, Franny Choi, and we'll have uh, Fatih Oscar, Jose Olivares, and Paul Tran as the three guests on that. So that's going to be a good time. It's free. There are still a few tickets available, so make sure you grab those. That's super dope. There's a Chicago podcast festival? Yeah, I know. Ridiculous. Okay. That's that's news. I don't, I'm, like, excited and salty. Uh, th- you share my sentiments <laughs> exactly. Um, so without further ado... Uh, let's get to this conversation. Oh, also, it's uh, my grandma Linda's 75th birthday this week. So shout out to grandma. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, grandma. <laughs> Happy birthday, grandmas everywhere. Shout out to all the grandmas. And uh, let's let's hear from Free Spirit, episode three. Here we go. Let's do it. I'm Maya McDonald. I'm Sam Kelly. I'm Chelsea Berry. I'm Pascal Sabino. I'm Kristen Simmons. I'm MJ Horton. I'm Ebony Ellis. I'm Pat Nabong. I'm Julia Monchin. I'm Amanda Tagati. We are The Real Shy. Welcome to the third episode of In the Loop, Out the Blue. This is a podcast reclaiming community journalism on both Chicago's West and South Side. We are reporting people over institutions. The Real Shy is a podcast of Free Spirit Media. Come take a ride with us. We are The Real Shy. This stop is headlines. We are a couple weeks after the election, and some of the biggest headlines are J.B. Pritzker winning the governor's race, 
we had the first judge to lose a retention bid in over 28 years. Matthew Coughlin only received 53% of the vote. And Chicago also saw, unofficially saw its highest voter turnout in decades. So applause to you. Thank you for voting. And uh, yeah, Sam covered some of the most heinous and entertaining campaign ads along the way. Yeah, really happy to see that Chicago had such a great voter turnout. But we here at The Real Shy, uh, we've kind of been missing all the nasty campaign ads that inundated our TVs and radios in the weeks preceding the election. So we thought we'd take a look back and commemorate some of the worst ones and see how their candidates fared in hindsight. Repeat after me. I, Mike Madigan, take you, J.B. Pritzker, as my unlawful partner in destruction to raise property taxes, corrupt government, and bankrupt Illinois' future. Done. Deal. And I, J.B. Pritzker, take you, Mike Madigan, to honor and obey till death do us part. Always have, always will. By the power vested in me, I now pronounce Illinois. Mike Madigan and J.B. Pritzker, an unholy union Illinois can't afford. So initially, the outrage about this ad was how the pastor says that Illinois is fucked. Crazy to hear that on TV. But then a little bit later, people started to realize that the depiction of Pritzker and Madigan's relationship as that of a gay couple engaged in an unholy union was somewhat problematic in and of itself. So to me, it's a little emblematic of the state of the Republican Party in 2018. But J.B. Pritzker, the Democratic winner of the race, also had some cringy ads, albeit in his own way. Mike Madigan hates puppies. Mike Madigan hates sunshine. J.B. Pritzker and Mike Madigan are Democrats, so J.B. Pritzker must hate puppies and sunshine. It's ridiculous. Bruce Rauner is a failure, and he blames everyone but himself. As a businessman, I've helped create thousands of jobs by bringing people together to solve problems and get results. And that's what I'll do as governor. And for the record, I love puppies. So this ad doesn't necessarily tell me anything about J.B. Pritzker, and I don't love it for that reason. Going into it, I know that he's one of the wealthiest men in America, and leaving the ad, I don't really know anything else. That being said, he's not Bruce Rauner, and he loves puppies apparently, so I guess that was good enough for him to win the governor's seat in Illinois. But Enough to win my vote in a two-party system. Yeah, it was enough to win my vote also, I guess. <laughs> That's where we're at right now with... The state of our election process. Yeah, the partisan divide. But I think we have another story that we want to cover as well, so I'll hand it off to Trevor and Maya. And speaking of partisan divides, the Mexican border reemerged in the media landscape over the past few weeks before the election with the caravan of migrant asylum seekers heading from Central America. Lots of Trump supporters still waiting on the wall, but Trump managed to meet them with 5,000 troops instead. So since October 12th, a group of around 5,000 migrants have been traveling from several Central American countries like Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador to escape things like persecution, poverty, and violence in their home countries. President Trump called this an invasion and has even ordered thousands of U.S. troops to the border to prevent them from entering the country. He even changed some of the asylum-seeking laws to prevent 
these people from legally obtaining asylum. And it's just crazy. That's the only tangible changes that have come with breaking the news of the caravan. Otherwise, it's sensational fear mongering that not only Trump through his podium continues to perpetuate, but also with Fox News and many of their different shows spinning a different way of framing this as an invasion. So, yeah, I guess we'll just see what will happen in these next few weeks. I mean, it's going to take these people like tons of time to even get to the border. And, you know, once they get there, I mean, we'll probably see an uptick in news coverage then. But for now, I mean, it seems like news coverage on the situation is kind of moving a little stagnant. I think it's just important that when consuming your news media, you kind of become more aware of these sorts of things, like Trump increasingly talking about the the migrant caravan just a few weeks before the election and the drop-off sort of in news coverage. Uh, Just things like that are important when consuming your information in your news media because, you know, as uh, the American people and consumers of media, you ideally will take this information and use it in your lives. So just being more aware of the way that media is kind of constructed and used in tangible ways in our lives. Check your sources. We want receipts. <laughs> That's been the headlines. Next stop, shoutouts and announcements. This stop is shout outs and announcements where we shout out cool people in Chicago doing cool things. So first up, we have Lagunitas Brewing Company in Douglas Park. You can stop by Tuesday through Sunday for beer tasting, live music and more cool events. Shout out to Sister Survivor Network for amplifying the voices of black women affected by the prison industrial complex with their continuous donations and community events. Shout out to Chicago Votes for their dedication to getting Chicago voters registered and keeping them informed. Shout out to Stony Island Arts Bank, a part of the Rebuild Foundation's effort to bring more artistic resources to the south side of the city. They have a lot of cool events going on, including a group conversation about the Black Panthers and adult ballet classes. Shout out to the Glen Art Farm in the Austin neighborhood for their private goat chills where you can go and commune with goats in their urban farm. Shout out to Social Work Shy for their initiative to empower youth and give back to the community. They're always accepting volunteers, so they're a great place to reach out to if you're looking to give back this holiday season. That's been shout outs and announcements. Next stop, who that? This stop is who that? Slime language. Our language. Our language. Our, language. our, our you slang. Feel you feel uh, the way we talk. Like the, way we talk. talk. the way we talk is different from how right. the way everybody else speaks. How we, we grew up? Different. 
It's yeah. really you, people think we, we grew up rough out here, but you know we enjoy ourselves to the best way we can. You feel? Chicago, very fun. Like, you feel me? Yeah. Like, like, I ain't gonna lie. I actually love like, living in Chicago. The, I just don't like what go on the in pizza, Chicago. Pizza, the Italian beefs. I love everything about Chicago. They got Chicago. the best food. The hot dogs. Everything. Like even the weather. The only thing I hate about <laughs> Chicago is the police because they don't serve and protect. They just shoot and kill. The day I, I remember is. No, when Obama became the president, I was a shorty, and my mom when it was in there juking, they was listening to music, everybody was in there getting down. And then we found out we had a black president or whatever, you feel me? That's one of the memories. Other than that, you feel me, just growing up, playing sports, you feel me, stuff like that, you feel me? This is The Deep Dish, where we take a dive into the issues surrounding our communities. Our guest today is Brendan Schiller, president and the managing partner at Schiller Prayer, um, and the board president of the Westside Justice Center. And we also have Jean Valerie, the founder of Movement and Medicine in Chicago. So the reporting that The Real Shy has done um, has really centered around the issue of ownership, and I know that was something that you mentioned earlier that you wanted to go into. And so we know that there are um, zero black or brown owners of dispensaries or cultivation centers in Illinois. Uh, so what effect does this lack of ownership have on the stigma surrounding cannabis use within communities of color? I'm not sure those two things are directly related in that way. I mean, there's a stigma of cannabis use that's both a legacy st a stigma as well as a stigma, frankly, that's intentional product of white supremacy and, and law enforcement. Um, and that's, they're related to the ownership issue. I don't think that that's a product of the ownership issue. But I think the stigma, for the most part, the stigma is gone, is going away. That doesn't mean there still isn't both unequal enforcement and unequal ownership. That's a different question. There's still obviously unequal enforcement, but that I don't think has anything to do with the stigma. I do in a way, but I think that the stigma still certainly exists. My own personal experience um, holding these underground events for Chicago, a lot of people don't come and are afraid to show up to these underground um, cannabis events because they are still they're still holding on to that stigma of oh, I'm a pothead, or I have to do this in the closet. Nobody can know. I think that the stigma still exists. It is going away, I think, and part of the movement um, and medicine community is to bring light to that stigma and to, you know, shed all those stereotypes and labels of, of what it means to be a cannabis user on top of all of the political and cultural things that are happening in Chicago in the industry and just generally politically right now. Um, I think that the stigma, even though it's going away, it's so deeply ingrained in our bodies and in the ways that we interact with the world. Why don't you guys um, take a moment to introduce yourselves and talk about the work that you guys do in the city? Okay. Um, so... I do a variety of things. I, the, the law firm does um, 
criminal defense, civil rights, immigration, and some government relations. As a part of the government relations, I've personally represented a um, dispensary in this town for about four years, four and a half years. Um, so because of that representation, I've been very familiar uh, with the state of Illinois regulations as it relates to marijuana and legislation and the industry. Um, and, and, I'm, and because of my other interests, my political interests, and the other things we do with the Westside Justice Center and, and some other stuff, I've become very familiar with marijuana legislation across the country. Uh, and, and I've been pretty active for the last several months trying to shape the coming recreational legislation in this state. My name is Jean, and I founded Movement and Medicine. It is a community of people of diverse colors and shapes and sizes and backgrounds and all expressions of, of life that um, seek to cultivate a relationship with their body, their mind, their soul, um, integrated with plant medicine. It was born out of my own passion and, and, and healing that has come to me from my movement practice and my relationship with this, with this plant. And it's also a place to reclaim our own healing and our own um, accountability and um, part in our healing. Because I think a lot of the time we're in this place of putting our, our healing or our, our conditioning on someone else. Um, and I, I think it's important to recognize our own capacity to move through all these different conflicts and conditions and illnesses that we have, that we carry in our bodies. And I've been holding these private underground events for people, create and cultivate spaces for, for healing. Um, and also for fun. There's a lot, there's so much going on in our lives, both like on a macro level and a micro level and creating space for people to just find play, just find movement, just have fun, just laugh and be in community is so, 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 so important. And um, providing alternative spaces for people to enjoy themselves. So it's not just like, oh, it's Friday night, it's Saturday night, let's go to a bar. Hey, how about it's Friday night, it's Saturday night. I want to get lit and I want to move. So a part of it is a very serious practice. And the other part is just for fun. Jean, um, what are some of the struggles that you face as someone who's creating this um, alternative space? One, one big thing um, is consumption, not being able to find spaces where we can partake in smoking, in anything that creates attention um, because it's not fully legal yet. Um, so that's been, that's been a huge piece. The other struggles, I think, is just it is operating underground right now. Um, that's been that's been a challenge for sure I, I was speaking on this earlier and it's not a, it's not really a struggle it's a I I so I'm um, Filipina American um, 
and I don't carry white privilege, and I also am not a black or brown person that's targeted. So in, in a way, I get to kind of slip under the radar to do this work um, and to hold spaces for people who, you know, who have all these different political identities or markers of identity that aren't respected um, in, our, in our culture, in our society. So I, I guess I get to use the privilege that I have um, and hold spaces for people who otherwise would not go to a yoga studio or to a meditation practice because it's not accessible. So it's not, for me, it's, I don't, I don't carry the struggle right now. I, I, get to, I get to hold space and create space for people who do struggle in these ways and create space for them to have a relationship with this plant um, that is therapeutic, that is healing, that is cathartic, that is playful, um, and also creating a, a deep um, knowing and trust that they have the capacity to, to heal. Brendan, do you, could you talk about like the, the legalities um, that Jean would face if she got busted? Yes, please do. Okay, well, that's interesting because there's a, there's a variety of aspects to that. So here's where we're at. In Illinois, we're a medicinal, legally medicinal marijuana um, state. We're, um, we've been so, the law passed five years ago. The first dispensary licenses were essentially let about four years ago. For basically three years now, we've had dispensaries in this state open and selling. There's currently about 45,000 patients legally licensed to buy marijuana in the state, and those are the people who can legally have marijuana. For the most part, for all intents and purposes, possession of marijuana has been basically been decriminalized, either legally or functionally. So simply possessing the marijuana um, for, from a state law perspective is, is, should be decriminalized. Now, what we've known is both in this state and in other states where, it has, where there's still some criminal penalties, theoretically, for, uh, for possessing marijuana, there's still a bunch of impact there's still a target on the on black and brown folks and they still get arrested gene is in a little bit of a different situation if i was giving her criminal advice for all intents and purposes if gene were hypothetically uh, uh, organizing where a bunch of people were coming to smoke that could be considered a conspiracy to distribute or conspiracy to allow the distribution of marijuana um which would still be a, a state felony and, would, and, is, and is still a federal felony in every state. Thankfully, we're talking for, about, Gene, we're talking about something that's hypothetical. But there's something else about the, the legal and political aspect of this, um, which I think is really important when it comes to Gene. What we know about in the state of Illinois is when they let the licenses, there were 57 dispensary licenses, 20 grow licenses. Those licenses are essentially held as we speak by about 16 different groups or individuals right now. And aside from a couple groups who have some really small minority participation by some people of color, that's almost all white conglomerates. One of the ways that the next bill can rectify that is by creating many tiers of licenses, not just dispensary owners, mm. but grows, distributors, 
producers, edible producers, they can create a variety of licenses. And one of the sets of licenses they can create is consumption on premises. And within that context, maybe we can get some movement in medicine licensed individuals who are allowed to to do activities specifically related to consumption of marijuana. And the advantage of trying to create as many licenses as possible is the economic barrier to getting in won't be so high. It costs several million dollars to build a grow a, a, a good grow facility. It costs a few hundred thousand dollars to build a good dispensary. But you could probably put together for just a handful of dollars, a nice uh, movement in medicine facility. And so I think as we're looking at what's going to be a rapidly moving uh, legislation going towards recreation, recreational marijuana in the state, we should look at that because we have a real opportunity in a nascent industry that in 10 years will be the single biggest consumer product industry in this country to create at least some level of equity from the beginning for the first time ever in any industry in this country. I was just really excited about the possibility of having a dedicated space for movement in medicine. Um, yeah, that's really exciting. And, and I think part of the pitch, and I, I, you know, not to take over the interview, but I think what you should talk about is how there's specific movement that you can do for specific illnesses. Yes. Yeah, so one of my my biggest visions um, uh, behind movement and medicine is to create um, content and curriculum and programming for specific uh, conditions and ailments um, that that medical patients are coming with uh, when they go to a dispensary. Um, so, say someone suffers from chronic back pain, um, so tailoring an entire movement and and um, meditation breath work practice to help alleviate some of those symptoms that come with whatever condition that they're carrying um, or holding and just doing that there's so many conditions out there um, that people are coming with so tailoring specific programs that help to alleviate um, whatever it is that they have. Amanda, the reason that's so important from a, a legal and a political perspective is there is a huge inclination not to have consumption on premises as a part of this initial recreation bill. In fact, every state that's gone from medicinal to recreational, all nine of them now, have not included consumption on premises in the initial recreation bill. And the problem is that th that lacks the vision of understanding that you need consumption on premises in order to be able to incorporate all of the holistic aspects of treating medicine. And there's been so much research and development in the last several years. There's so much of a better understanding of strains, of terpene profiles, of cannabinoid profiles. We now understand that if you want to attack certain illnesses, you, want, you need certain terpene profiles in, in that cannabis strain. Well, that needs to be done in conjunction with the science and the holistic medicine that's happening on the other end that doesn't involve marijuana. And in order to bring them together, you need consumption on premises. And even if it's just for the medicinal purposes, Gene's vision is going is, needs to be expressed to the legislators. This is why we need consumption on premises for the medical marijuana dispensaries. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of people don't... Uh 
have access to other therapies. Um, so what I'm imagining is if I were to be able to come in as a movement instructor um, and get to talk one-on-one -on -one with patients about their symptoms and, and the pain that they're going through, being able to work with, with bud tenders and with the knowledge of the plant um, and combining that with um, the, the knowledge that I have um, and then sort of bridging, bridging these, two, these two worlds together um, so that it is healing, it is therapeutic um, and it is holistic. Just something that we've also been talking about, we talked a little bit earlier about stigma, right? So when we think about marijuana, I mean, we all, we automatically think about stoners. Um, and I think that's, I feel like that's also affecting maybe the legalization of it as well as just people just want to get high for, for the fun of it. Um, I know, Jean, that you did some work as well in California in the Bay Area. So maybe you can talk about... Um, what your work was like out there and here in Chicago and how that differentiates. Sure. Um, I had some friends that were um, helping to write the equity program in San Francisco um, who have since lost their businesses because huge corporations have, have taken over. Um, so when I was doing it out there um, in, in the Bay Area, there was still, you know, issues around and around consumption. Um, the industry there seems to have already kind of, it's pretty well established. Um, and so I think here in Chicago, there is an enormous opportunity to actually learn from California and Colorado and other states that have um, legalized both medically and recreationally. Um, so I think Chicago is a really great place to have this grassroots coming up, haha, <laughs> grass, <laughs> grassroots coming up out of really building from um, what other states have built and really um, have equity be a vital element to building the structure to the industry here. So can I talk about how we can accomplish equity a little bit? Yes. Um, there's some very concrete things that could go into this recreational legislation that's not in. Just, just so everybody's clear, because I didn't explain this. There was a bill drafted a year ago by two very progressive legislators, Heather Steens and Kelly Cassie, both north, north side of Chicago uh, legislators. But that bill is very problematic because it does not ensure any type of equity. Now, they are progressive. They want to ensure equity. There's a variety of political forces at play. You have the kind of the conglomerates who own most of the industry now. Um, you have folks who have m wealth and privilege who want to get into the industry. But then we should have the social justice component. And, and, and I know that, that Pritzker and Stratton are going to ensure things like expungements for old marijuana convictions, but... Where the hard, where the rubber meets the road, is ensuring equity and ownership, right? And and I think, when people start to pay attention, there's three things we can do to make that happen. And the first is, any new license, you need a hundred percent disclosure of all ownership. And the, if you do that, it makes it 
frankly, almost impossible for all these groups which have become conglomerates over the past three, four years and are now going over to the Canadian exchange and, and selling publicly, they can't get a new license because you're never going to be able to disclose 100% of ownership if, if you're uh, trading publicly. And then the second is tie licenses to certain police districts where there's been a lar large number of marijuana arrests, something similar to what they did in Oakland and, and the Bay Area. We know that in, in this current Supreme Court, you're not going to pass constitutional muster if you base it, tie it based on race. But we also know in this segregated city, there are certain police districts that are 100% black, they're 100% Latino, and they also happen to be the police districts where there's been the most arrests mm. in the past. So if you say X percentage of ownership, 51 or 60% of ownership, has to be by somebody who lives in one of these police districts, you're guaranteeing some equity. Mm. Um, and then the third piece is even a higher percentage of that ownership, whatever it is, 80, 90, even 100%, has to be locally based in Illinois. And then you block out, again, some of that corporate international control. And I think if we start to include some of those pieces and then, and then, like Gene said, look at what happened out West, look at how they've done things out West and learn from that, we can start to make sure that the next set of licenses really does have some equity in it. Actually, so Bree was the one who, like one of our reporters, who really took some time to dive into um, the cannabis industry and how it affects black and brown communities. Um, a question that she wanted to ask today um, was, how can we work to include people with the most marginalized identities who may find it extremely challenging to access even the current medic system? So um, marginalized identity is meaning maybe undocumented immigrants um, and things like that. Um, you mean access it from a consumer perspective or from an owner perspective? Um, from a consumer or even an owner perspective. So... Um, from a consumer perspective, I mean, just something important happened in terms of the medical industry. Up until a couple months ago, you had to get light, you had to get fingerprinted and um, go through a background check. And so that obviously kept a, a large portion of the community out. Um, that's changed. You can now become a medical card owner without being fingerprinted and without getting a background check. You just need a prescription, basically, um, from a doctor. So, uh, so that's changed. Frankly, I, I encourage. We don't. We believe that's going to become that the state will become recreational next year. We don't know for sure. I encourage everybody to go get a, a license because even if you didn't buy the marijuana, and I'm not saying this is legal advice, but if you got a license on, you got a pretty good argument if you ever get stopped with it that that's legally held. Um, and and let me say this: the legalization of marijuana has resulted in the commercialization of marijuana, which is there's some bad things about it, but one of the really good things about it is when you go into a dispensary, you get to see the terpene profile. You get to see the cannabinoid profile. You know exactly what you're smoking, which you don't know on the street. So if you can, you really should actually get your product legally. Um, but, but you're never going to – you can't change – the dynamic that marginalized people are feeling until you change the criminal justice system. That's mm. separate from marijuana. Mm -hmm. right. So that's, that has to be a holistic approach to changing the criminal justice system, um, which is kind of what I do do every day, right? Uh, we, we, we sue the city all the time. We're in the middle of consent decree negotiations with them. I represent 
Black Lives Matter, Network 49, NAACP in those in those negotiations. Um, but there needs to be a change with the 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 police, the prosecution, and the judges. And you need to stop stopping people based on stuff that they shouldn't be stopped for. Mm-hmm. In terms of ownership, it is people. It is figuring out a way to get into the industry from any way possible, including things like what Gene is doing and, and trying to figure out how you make that part of the industry and part of the commercialization of the industry that begins from its nascent right. point. How can we work to include people with the most marginalized identities who may find it extremely challenging to access even the current medic system? Um, I mean, ditto on everything that Brendan said and also from a consumer point um, and just from my own perspective, creating spaces uh, that are accessible and relatable um, because what from what I have learned in my short time in the Bay Area and doing this work in the Bay Area and in, in Los Angeles, there is a, and I was speaking to about this earlier, um, there is this um, re, like trying to redefine what it means to be a stoner, what it means to be a cannabis user. Um, and there's a lot of um, brands, new cannabis brands out there that are, that have this like really beautiful minimalist um, feminine aesthetic, um, but there's no depth to it. I, I've seen a lot of like um, uh, yoga and and weed classes out there that are um, that aren't really speaking to the the power of what it means to be combining these two practices and these two. Uh, ways to to heal the body and the and the mind, and so to bring it full circle is to create spaces that the everyday person that doesn't identify as a new age <laughs> hippie or um, a hipster or you know somebody that can look and speak all kinds of of different ways and express themselves in different ways and being able to bring all these different communities um, and expressions of life together to come into one space. That's a very rare thing. Like I've gone to many yoga studios um, and meditation practices where it's pretty homogenous, pretty, pretty like everyone looks white and heteronormative. And I come in and I, and I don't necessarily feel like, oh, I belong here. And I'm cr- trying to create those spaces where people can walk in and be like, oh, I belong here. I fit in here, regardless of sexual orientation, gender, color, class, whatever. If I can create a space where people can be like, oh, I'm safe here. I feel seen here. I can move here. I can breathe here. It's cool. I'm not going to be like, oh, that person's a stoner. Or like, oh, that person is da-da-da-da. Like if you can create spaces where people can feel present and safe, that's a very basic thing. But it's a hard thing. Obviously, that's why we're here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. This stop is Girl on a Train. This stop is on the train. 
where reporters from The Real Shy go onto the CTA and meet real Chicagoans on their daily commute. In this episode, we're discussing redlining, segregation and gentrification throughout the city from the perspective of the red line. Um, so, if I'm coming from the south side, the further, well, from coming from the south side, when I get to maybe like Sir Mac Chinatown, I don't really see any more. I don't know, minorities. I see, well, you know what, that's a lie, because I see a lot of people when I get to Sir Mac Chinatown, but I don't see as many blacks when I get there. So normally they're usually all going by 35th or something like that, but I really don't see as many blacks when I get to Sir Mac Chinatown. Uh, the further you get downtown, the more white it gets, and uh, it's, it's, it's like a gradient. That's what it is. It's like a gray. You get a. Uh, now I'm not speaking of race as a color, but it's like more of a spectrum. You get like a darker portion. This is more concentration on one end, and it gets to the other. When you hit downtown, it's slightly more mixed, but that's like you pass the center zone, and then the more you go into the south side, it goes back to being progressively darker. The red line is Chicago's most popular train route, with over 73 million riders in 2017, starting at the northern border of Chicago and Evanston. The train travels south in a near straight line, ending in the Roseland neighborhood. And if you look around, you'll see stark changes inside and outside the train. I think redlining back in the day is like sort of one of the inciting parts of it. And like, even though it's not on the books anywhere anymore, like, I think it's like its legacy is still pretty clearly happening in the city. Chicago was over 90% white in the early 1900s. This began to change as the Great Migration began and black folks left the South to move north, hoping to escape discriminatory laws. In the 1930s, after the Great Depression, a predominantly white Chicago pushed back against a diversifying population. A federal agency called the Home Owners Loan Corporation instituted a program we now know as redlining. This practice outlined neighborhoods in Chicago and ranked their eligibility for financial lending on a number of factors, including race. Lowest-rated neighborhoods were drawn in red and denied access to credit due to their racial composition. What resulted was a deeply segregated city with a wide gap between resources for different neighborhoods determined by race. Just because you live south doesn't mean that you're going to have a better opportunity of getting a job or finding something that's going to be helpful for you to do all day, or something constructive to do at all. In 2000, Chicago's black population began to drop. By 2016, it had fallen 22%. Less than 100 years after the Great Migration, Chicago is seeing the reverse, a black exodus. Uh, a lot of people are living this, leaving the city for better opportunities, whether it's housing, whether it's work. In a lot of people, sadly enough to say, there's a lot of violence in our community, in our neighborhood, within our, within our people. So that could be an issue. But a lot of people are moving for opportunity outside of that. While this spread is occurring quickly on the north side, affecting areas like Rogers Park, changes are slower on the south side, an area that has been historically disinvested in. Yeah. And you know what? Definitely. I'm watching them like remake all these streets. They're turning all these streets into one lane. Like, remember, you, it's just a lot of things changing. It definitely is. And I don't know if it's to improve the neighborhood for somebody else or to improve the neighborhood for us. You just never know. It took them forever to put the Divi bikes on the south side. 
and it's not really south side. You got to go a little further mm -hmm. over to get to them. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's what it is. Which it's terrible. It really is. It's terrible. It is. Yeah. Chicago's losing people every year, not because they don't want to live here. Sometimes it's just because they can't afford it. I mean, in some places you need a least 65 hours a week working just to afford a place to live. Chicago seems to be one of those places at times. Like I have two jobs just to afford my place. It's important to remember that gentrification cannot occur without segregation. So while gentrification in Chicago is a frequently discussed issue, focusing on the displacement of communities of color as realtors and trendy businesses seize properties. To some folks on the South Side, the stories of neighborhoods like Pilsen's rapid economic development hit a different chord. In the Hispanic neighborhood, they're building. They're building, they invest the money, they put better gyms, better materials, you know, just better opportunities for the kids. I'm about to get off, so, you know, you know, they're, they're bringing it up. They're building it for the kids to have a place to go to have opportunities to live better to play amongst each other you know the schools the playgrounds activities they don't bring none of that in the south side they don't bring none in the south side in layman's turn level level the playing field make everything even why is why would why would Lakeview have to be more expensive than Rogers Park? They're right next door to each other. There are places that, you know, rent-wise, their prices are in the low 800s, which is around the area I live in. And there are places like just a couple blocks away that are about 1600 or 1200 for a one-bedroom. I mean, if you want to fix the gentrification issue and bring in additional revenue, then you should focus on just similar pricing. That's been On the Train. Next stop, One Minute of Love. This stop is One Minute of Love. In order to connect with somebody, you need more than news. For a little bit of love today, here's the real shy's own Amanda Tagati. I learned how to kiss in second grade. Shayna taught me. We were on the playground and she told me that she's been practicing. She's been vying for Michael since the beginning of the year and she was going to get him before Jenna was. She was just waiting for the right time to make her move. All of the boys in the class had a crush on Jenna. She had a head full of dark, thick curls that never seemed to fall out of place, not even when she double-dutched on the blacktop, and perfect patterns of soft freckles dancing from cheek to cheek. Shayna, however, was a fiery redhead who liked to wear big updos and seal them with glittery barrettes. All of the boys called Shayna the Shriller after that one time she screamed at Billy for stealing her colored pencils. We sat across from each other on the grass field. She rolled her left sleeve up to her elbow and balled her hand into a fist. She turned her fist toward me so I could see the mouth that she tried to make with her thumb and curled index finger. She moved her thumb up and down to mirror a pair of talking lips. You try, she said. Just pucker up and close your eyes. This stop is one minute of love. In order to connect with somebody, you need more than news. For a little bit of love today, here's the real shy's own Amanda Tagati. 
I learned how to kiss in second grade. Shayna taught me. We were on the playground and she told me that she's been practicing. She's been vying for Michael since the beginning of the year and she was gonna get him before Jenna was. She was just waiting for the right time to make her move. All of the boys in the class had a crush on Jenna. She had a head full of dark, thick curls that never seemed to fall out of place, not even when she double-dutched on the blacktop, and perfect patterns of soft freckles dancing from cheek to cheek. Shayna, however, was a fiery redhead who liked to wear big updos and seal them with glittery barrettes. All of the boys called Shayna the Shriller after that one time she screamed at Billy for stealing her colored pencils. We sat across from each other on the grass field. She rolled her left sleeve up to her elbow and balled her hand into a fist. She turned her fist toward me so I could see the mouth that she tried to make with her thumb and curled index finger. She moved her thumb up and down to mirror a pair of talking lips. You try, she said. Just pucker up and close your eyes. This is the final stop, as far as this podcast goes. The Real Shy is a program under Free Spirit Media, which provides media education for young people on both west and south sides of Chicago. We would like to thank our guests. We would also like to thank Daniel Kisslinger and Damon Williams of Ergo, and a special thanks to Cards Against Humanity for sharing their studio with us. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Real Shy FSM. Until next time, thanks for riding with The Real Shy. This episode of Ergo is brought to you by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so we didn't.